I'm Doug Duran, a landowner trying to be a conservationist. I'm Tabitha Panis, president of the Iowa Prairie Network. I'm Ryan Callahan, director of conservation at Meat Eater. Angela from X and Root Homestead. Chris Helzer, the Nebraska director of science for the Nature Conservancy. Judd McCollum from Working Class Bowhunter. Taylor Keene, founder of Sacred Seeds. Ryan Bryson of Bryson Wildlife. This is Luke Fritch. This is James Holtz. Joy Van Weingarten. Sam Sobel. Phil Ebert. Julie Meachin. And you are listening to the Prairie Farm. The Prairie Farm. Prairie Farm. Prairie Farm. Prairie Farm Podcast. Prairie Farm Podcast. Welcome to the Prairie Farm Podcast. So, Barb, Laura never mentions her time that she spent in Burr Oak in any of the books, right? If I if I remember that correctly, That's it's, right. it's it's just it's not mentioned in there. What's what's the reason for that or the speculation for that? Does anybody know? Well, she did write about it in an autobiography that she had written before her children's books. Uh, about her year here in Baroque, but when she published her children's books, she left that out on purpose for a number of reasons. In the gift shop in our um, visitor center, we actually have a letter that Laura wrote to a teacher about five miles from here, and in that letter, she explains to the children that she did not write about Baroque because it was a short time, and there were too many characters to write about. And she felt that an author does not want to use a lot of different characters. So it would be best not to do that. Uh, but she has also said in her autobiography that being a very short time and a very sad time here um, after losing her baby brother and having to sell their farm in Minnesota, it also uh, did not fit with her uh, goal of always showing that pioneer spirit of traveling west, um, as all you know, a lot of pioneers did back then, and um, it they were moving back east because they had failed for that that particular year, and so it didn't fit with her theme of her stories. Okay, wow. The, so there's quite a few reasons there, and when I first so when I first heard that it was actually here when I visited here several years ago. And it's kind of like a, well, why didn't she mention us? But it, start, it makes sense, you know, when you hear the, the explanation there as far as the storytelling, you know, just the writability of it, I guess you would say, but also um, just not a great time in her, her life. And when you read her books, there's definitely a undertone of bliss and happiness growing up, you know, and right. especially in the first two. And uh, to to then go to that darker tone would just, yeah, I, it, it, it didn't fit. So, yeah, it makes sense. But, well, the other voice today, everyone, tuning into the Prairie Farm Podcast, the other voice on, on this episode is Miss Barb Olson, who is a historian, works with the museum here in Burr Oak, the Laura Ingalls Wilder Museum. How, how, how long have you lived in Burr Oak, Barb? A little over 40 years. I taught school at the uh, local school about three miles. It was a rural school, which is uh, closed and consolidated now. Sure. Um, But I taught there for 33 years. And then after retirement, I came to the museum. Wow. That's awesome. What a service to the community. That's that's really great. Uh, What grades did you teach? Uh, First, second, and third. Wow. That's awesome. And... uh, uh, my mom, she attended a rural school that probably would have, I imagine, would have been a similar size to what you would have had here just from knowing that town. Hers hers was in the little tiny town of uh, Lighton, Iowa. And um, that, I don't know if they, they may have already been like consolidated into another uh, district, but um, they closed that school down as well. And I think it's a um, kind of a uh, retirement home now or something like that but, but yeah very cool i love hearing those little stories about the iowa countryside um there's little little like hints of still being on the frontier in iowa you know we're a super changed landscape everything's been totally changed on our landscape but yet you know there's still like in the nooks and crannies of iowa you can still kind of get that f- feel of you know, not being that far away from the old, the old days, right, which, right. which is cool. I like that. So, uh, you were a teacher, been in Burroughs for a long time. How did you get interested in, uh, the Laura Ingalls museum? 
Well, I was fascinated with Laura's story from the time I was a little girl. I grew up reading the books, of okay. course. And I just thought it was fascinating and wanted to live just like her, although I never took that leap. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So so did you uh, grow up in Iowa then be- before uh, you moved to Baroque? Or- yes. Yeah. Okay. I was from um, Cedar Rapids. Okay. Uh, yep. So not too far away from where all the action is in that story right. or in those stories, I should say. That's Yeah, that's awesome. And then uh, just this place in Iowa, this is one of my favorite uh, just places on the planet, Driftless, Iowa. Uh, did you kind of fall in love with that when you moved here? Yeah, the the bluffs, especially in the autumn when the colors mm. start changing, are just breathtaking. Yeah, Yep. And uh, you even mentioned that uh, one of your uh, grandchildren works for a popular tourist uh, attraction in the area. So yes, uh-huh. must be kind of in the family's blood now, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> no, I love coming up here. love the cold water trout streams and the, the like you said, the beautiful bluffs and um, just the more diverse landscape, really. You have some prairie, but also a lot of forest and and uh, it's different from pretty much everywhere else in our state. Mm-hmm. But uh, just a just a beautiful place up here in Driftless area. Uh, if you've been a longtime listener to the podcast, you know how deeply connected I feel to a sense of place. And so uh, when I come back here, which this is actually our second time this summer being here, that's how much I like coming up here. And we live three and a half hours away. Um, it's it's just really nice to be here. So, why, in your opinion, why do you think her stories? were and continue to be so popular with such a wide range of readers or because of the TV show uh, viewers. Why, why do you think her story is just so popular? I think people are still fascinated and interested in the pioneer story and the pioneer life, um, the hardships and the joys and what it took to be a pioneer and survive. And I think that story of survival just is of great interest to a lot of people. Um, Our young readers, I think, like to identify with her, her feelings and her, not necessarily her experiences, but compare them to uh, things that they know about, but how different it was back then. Yeah, yeah, I, I... You know, when you mentioned some of those things, I could see how it connected even to myself. You know, you think of a good story and it's got all that drama. You know, it has it has uh, such a, a, you know, diverse mix of things that draw your interest into them. So, you know, you think of some of the stories about, um, you know, the travel. Well, how was it to travel when there were no real roads and there weren't, you know, you were totally at the mercy of your livestock being able to pull a wagon and how sturdy was that wagon? And, you know, what about crossing creeks and lakes and rivers and things? And so all of that. But then once you get there, how do you survive? How do you get food? How do you? And then what about the changing season? You know, there's just so much of it there. That's just drama, drama, drama. And, um, you know, I've heard people describe and and maybe this is this can get you you and i were just talking at, we we've had to bounce around a little bit here because this is a working museum and so we got to kind of move around which is totally fine uh, because there's tours going on um and uh we should also say this is is this the only place that laura lived that is still like the physical structure is still on its original site there okay. are you know a couple of other homes that are uh, childhood homes um, that have survived, but they're they've been moved into town oh, okay. to make it more convenient. This is the only childhood home that's on its original site. Wow, wow, that that's that's so cool to know that we're seeing the things that Laura and her family saw in a way, you know, that you know, all those years ago. But but yeah, um, you know the uh, we were talking off air. Before we, uh, before we had to relocate here in the museum, which is where we're at, which is a very cool place to be doing this interview. Um, in Laura's autobiography, which I have not read yet, I'm very, I think that's probably going to be the next thing on my list. I, I spent a lot of times in the production fields at Hoxie and I listened to books all day long. And um, that'll probably be one of the next ones I listen to, uh, just to get that unique perspective that really interests me. But um, Barb mentioned that in her autobiography, 
she doesn't make it sound as flowery and pleasant as the Little House on the Prairie series make things seem like all is well. You know, even though we face all these challenges, you still have Pa and Jack there to protect us, right? Right. And, but in the autobiography, Barb said it wasn't that way. And um, I've heard someone mention before that, and I've had this thought too, that when you go to that point in history, there was so much conflict in our country, you know, so much hardship that people were dealing with so much loss you know how, how many people had loved ones pass away what we would deem now prematurely you know you look at what the average life expectancy was for somebody living on the on you know on the western frontiers of our country uh, not great you know and they described it as the uh Everybody walked around with PTSD, you know, because of the horrible things that they'd seen or survived or lost loved ones to. And so I think that aspect of it, you know, that incredible challenge and grit that existed is probably what draws people in. But then when you have Laura's story from the the eyes of a child, it's much more pleasant. It's much more warm. I think when people read it that had a close knit family like Laura did, they probably draw some connection between that and themselves. And so, uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely such a popular series though. And of course I think the TV show, which we kind of talked about too, that probably helped with that. Um, you made a comment when we were walking in that, uh, a lot of people who come haven't read the books, but have seen the TV show. Is that right? That's right. (laughs) Well, and, and what do you, what do you, what are the con- or conversations? How do those differ from the people that are the the bookworms versus the people seen on TV? A lot of them have very specific questions. Um, three in particular was uh, Laura's sister Mary really blind? Okay. And was there an adopted son named Albert? And um, was there a dog named Jack? <laughs> <laughs> oh, and and was Nellie a real person? <laughs> So those are the four things that they always want to know when they get here. And, of course, we're more than willing to share what we know about those particular things. So. Yeah, yeah, that's that's great. And it's awesome to to see how people connect to that. And they want to know and they want to be here and see it for themselves. So They do realize that, you know, even if they haven't read Laura's stories, they do realize how fictionalized the TV show was. But that's okay, because they kept within that realm of family values and close-knit family that helped each other and relied on each other, and Mm. their faith carried them through all the hard times. So that's okay. Yeah, yeah. Yep, I, I like I like how you put that. And there they were they were a family that lived with faith being kind of a foundational aspect to keeping them going and keeping them together through through all those challenges that we just talked about. So here's something that I've I wondered. You know, those books are very well written, so they're not just an interesting story. But Laura did a great job recording you know recording her thoughts and and it should also be said right the books are technically what historical fiction is is that what they classify as so she may have she may have uh you know flowered up things a little bit spiced them up but um they're mostly based on real things that happened to her and her family is that correct correct Uh uh-huh and she just does a wonderful job telling it you know it's uh, uh it's not just you know, some drab recounting of facts. And, you know, she, she really tells a wonderful story. So it made me wonder, where did she learn to write so well? Does she have a, you know, what's her education background? You know, just how, how did she become such a great writer? Well, I think part of that was uh, the influence of her family. Her, both of her parents wrote uh, in some way, uh, okay. her mother was a teacher and always saw to it that if the girls weren't in town where there was a school, that she was schooling them herself. That was very important. And Laura herself loved to attend school. Okay. She challenged herself constantly. Um, and she may not have, we may not have any journals or pieces that she wrote specifically when she was growing up. But I have a sense that she always enjoyed doing that. Mm-hmm. And the words just kind of flowed out of her mouth and out of her mind. And she was able to capture that on paper. 
Yeah, yeah. Was she an avid reader growing she up? She was. Mm-hmm. So I imagine that helps too, right? You learn from reading other people's stuff how to how to be a good writer yourself. So, yeah, that's that's uh, it's it's good to know that. And I just had that thought, you know, as I was as I was getting through the books and and just man, this is this is very well done. So you know, another thing, and this has kind of been a challenge in recent history with um, Laura and her family was the issue of racism at the time period. Um, A lot of the conflict we talked about just a few minutes ago existed between indigenous people and European settlers that were, you know, been in America for, oh, at this time, several hundred years since the first European settlements on the East Coast. But as people were, you know, Looking west, and of course, the Louisiana Purchase sped that up in a big way, and Lewis and Clark's exploration of the west, and and um, yeah, the the trappers even before that, and and the mountain men that were starting to push even further west. Behind them was this ocean of people that were looking for to start new, looking for new opportunities, and there's, you know, in some cases, truly free land grabs that were going on, um, but also cheap land for sale and, uh, people viewed it as a new opportunity. And it, it was kind of a more unique situation for Laura's family when they moved, which the furthest West location was independence, Kansas. Is that correct? Yes. Uh-huh. But it was politically a strange time because that, area wasn't really opened up for settlement yet, right? Was that? Was That's that? what I understand. Mm-hmm. And so they were kind of banking on, well, if we get there early, we can get a choice piece. And, you know, everything so far, yeah, there might be a little bit of back and forth on it, but the government eventually makes some proclamation that all is well for the settlers. They can be there. We're going to protect them. We're going to... We're going to establish them there. And that doesn't really happen at the end of the first book, um, which we can talk about that more in a, a few minutes. But but um, there was all kinds of conflict. And it, it makes sense that there would be, right? There you have these indigenous people who've been living there for millennia. And now you have these newcomers coming in and saying, we're going to live here too. And, you know, a total different, viewing of ownership of land, you know, more so this is a part of our tribe's land, not one person's land. Whereas European land owning practices, you put your name on it and that is your piece of ground. And so all these things led to conflict and not just here, you know, not just in the Western part of our country, go back to the earliest days of European settlement in the new world and there was conflict. And so this was still existing and, and boiling away for a couple centuries at this point. And in the books, um, especially The Little House on the Prairie, Laura makes mention of this. Um, is there any idea what how Laura... I mean, she talks about all the time in the story how she wants to see an infant Native American child all the time. And uh, she seems she seems to have almost a neutral relationship with Native Americans. But Ma is very much so very prejudiced against Native Americans, right? I think at the time she, uh, Ma, was um, more worried about rumors that she had heard of conflicts uh, and wars um, between settlers and Native Americans and was just worried. Mm -hmm. Um, Because growing up as a child, she and her family had help during one winter when uh, food was scarce Mm. and their Native American neighbors helped them out. And so I think mom might have even been conflicted. But in the back of her mind, she's worried about these events that she had heard uh, taking place and living so close in that community um, of Native Americans. She, I think she just had a worry. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, that it's mentioned in the book, you know, Laura talks about uh, that concern and th- there were some pretty tense encounters, you know, again, uh, I assume those are based on real events that took place for her family when, uh, you know, there's the story in Little House on the Prairie with the uh, fresh killed skunk and the uh, um, uh, couple of uh, uh, Native American men stopped by and demanded, you know, that something be prepared for them, a meal or something. And um, but then also uh, she men- mentions the very favorite. And, the, and no harm came to the family. They, they treated them well. Right, they, right. They, they didn't harm them in any way. She also mentions um, the, uh, uh, she, I think, referred to him as a chief, some kind of, some kind of prominent figure within the, the uh, Native American community there near their house um, in Kansas uh, who intervened on behalf of, the uh, European settlers there, there was, there was uh, talk of some kind of lashing out against the settlers to drive them back from those uh, native American territories. Um, so she, is there, is there any idea how did, did Laura ever kind of make peace with, with um, that relation, that, that complicated relationship. Does she ever talk about that in her autobiography or anything like that? Not that I remember am aware of, you know, they were just circumstances that she was writing about. And we also have to remember that when she wrote that she was in her sixties trying Mm -hmm. to think back when she was a child. And at the time when they lived in Kansas, she was only uh, three and four years old. Mm -hmm. Now the book doesn't tell you, I mean, she is older in the book. Yeah. And that was partly because the publishers insisted that she change her age. Uh, so she's thinking the, way back, right? I mean, yeah, sixty years. And so even her perception of what was happening could be that right. Very different. Yes, that's a great piece of that's a great piece of historical fact right there. Because um, I think in the story she says she's seven, right? Right, I and, think so. And th- there's a huge difference. I have a four-year-old and a six-year-old right now, and there's a huge difference in uh, how they perceive things. And uh, that's interesting. And that was that was interesting that her public. I imagine that's why her publisher wanted her to claim to be older, so that it would seem more factual than than what it may have been. So. Yeah, it's it's unfortunate, you know, uh, very unfortunate. And if you've listened to episode two in this series, the Prehistoric Prairie series, it's just an unfortunate part of that that point in history for our country. All that conflict and uh, loss of life and property and uh, misrepresentation. And, and um, I certainly don't have the solution for how things should have happened, but, um, it definitely didn't, didn't go as it should have. And, and people were marginalized and treated poorly. And, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's definitely a stain on our country and you can kind of get that idea when you read the books, especially, um, how ma, how ma, how her Caroline, I believe is her name, how her opinion is stated through the book and is perceived through the book. Um, but there's a lot to say about the rest of the family too. So Laura was child number two, right? Right. She had an older sister, Mary, and then, uh, um, younger sister, um, I'm forgetting her name right now, uh, Carrie, Carrie right. <laughs> and then, uh, a brother that, that passed away, right? Yes. Uh-huh. And what was his name? Uh, Charles Frederick. They called him Freddie. Freddie. And, and so he passed away right before moving to Baroque. Yes. Is that correct? Right. Okay. Yep. And um, uh, so when they moved here, there was that aspect, but you mentioned there's other sadness going on in the family at that time as well, right? Some, maybe some financial struggles. Kind of thing. I think it was just the poverty of the, I mean, they came here uh, with practically nothing and it wasn't a good year. Um, it didn't meet their expectations. Um, I don't think that they left any farther ahead than they were when they came. 
Mm-hmm. So it was a difficult year for them. Yeah. Yeah. And where did they come from to like when they moved from somewhere to Burr Oak, where were they right before Burr Oak? They came from Walnut Grove, Minnesota, okay. and um, they decided to sell their farm to pay off their debts and had uh, decided to go into partnership with friends of theirs to run the hotel. Now, those friends came here um, during the summer. However, the Ingalls family left Walnut Grove, Minnesota, and went to see Charles's brother, Peter Ingalls, who was living in South Troy, Minnesota. And Charles's brother, Peter, had hired him, Charles Pa, for the summer to help bring in the crops and then the early fall, um, or to plant the crops and then the early fall uh, crops um, paid him to harvest so that they came here with a little bit of money to travel with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, so that we're talking about Pa now, which is another major character in the story. Um he, you can tell Laura views him, at least from the perspective of Little House on the Prairie, as, as uh, possibly the most special person in her in her life. You almost get this idea, you know, he's got that nickname for Laura, little half pint of cider, half drunk up or something like right. that. <laughs> and she never mentions really that I remember a nickname for Mary or, or Carrie. Right. And, yeah. and, uh, it's almost like she had a special connection with Paul. Would you agree with that? Yes. Yeah. She seems to that she he is her idol. I think. Yeah. Yeah. And in some ways, he seems, at least based on the stories, to be very industrious. I mean, he knew how to. He's one of those guys that kind of just knew how to do everything, from building a house to hunting and trapping and and uh, even some farming. <laughs> but he definitely seems to be a dreamer. Uh, he. You know, he has he has that desire to kind of see what's over the next hill. Yeah, I agree with that. <laughs> and do you think that caused the family some some financial strife and so forth because he had a hard time staying in one spot? Well, it could have, but I also feel that many times their moves were because of their financial situation. They were definitely a victim of circumstances mm-hmm. beyond their control. For instance, they they had to leave Walnut Grove, Minnesota, after enduring grasshoppers play grasshopper mm-hmm. plates yeah, right. for two summers in a row, and they had lost everything. Mm-hmm. Um, when they left Kansas, there were a number of reasons that could have contributed to that move once again: uh, conflict with the government, conflict with Native Americans, conflict with the railroad. The railroad was trying to buy up land. And if they wanted to buy the land that they had settled on, they probably would have had to pay a lot more to compete with a railroad. And in the meantime, the person that had bought their farm back in Wisconsin had defaulted on the loan. And so they had no income left from that sale of the farm in Wisconsin. So they went back to take the family farm back. So a lot of times they were just trying to do... Pa was just trying to do the best that he could to provide for his family and mm-hmm. had to make some really hard decisions. Sure, sure. And when they left, um, so the little house in the big woods, when they left that in Wisconsin to go on their journey to Kansas, what was the real motivation? Because it seemed like life was pretty good there. But what was was it just, man, that looks good over there in Kansas? I think so. I think they... That was the offer of free land, and I think he was just ready to go and try something new. Mm-hmm. He definitely had that pioneer spirit of adventure <clears throat> and willing to pick up roots and start over again someplace else. Sure. Was there, I think there is, I'm trying to remember at the beginning of when he's talking to Caroline at the beginning of the little house on the prairie, he's, you know, kind of like rallying the troops. Yeah, this is going to be a good thing. He mentions that um, he won't have to look so hard for game. And he, what was there this idea that because, you know, we were talking, and we'll talk about this here in a little bit, just the physical barrier of the Mississippi River to get across that, that, that was a real hindrance for westward expansion. Um, of course, you know, eventually you had ferries and so forth that 
could get people across more re- safely and reliably. But um, was 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 Wisconsin as far as a natural resource standpoint because settlers had been there for a while longer. Was it were those resources starting to get exhausted? You know, game and so forth. Um, because when we look at you know, I'm a hunter. I like to hunt, uh, but I I you know to survive i don't have to you know we have we have a food chain that is very different now than was back then whereas these people that's how they had meat to get through the winter and Lori talks about that quite a bit in the little house in the big woods you know um do you think that things were already starting to get depleted there and that's why people were looking to go to the you know to go west because they you know we're kind of eating ourselves out of resources here. Yes. Laura mentioned two reasons, big reasons why Pa decided to try something new. And one was the lack of game, that things were just being hunted out. That and the fact that they lived near and in the woods and he got tired of the tree saplings Mm. and always having to fight that every time he put in another crop. So between the two... Uh, he just felt open prairie was going to be the answer. Hmm, that's very interesting. And so they already had, well, of course, there are prairies in southern Wisconsin, you know, uh, from a historical, you know, natural history of Wisconsin. So they would have had concepts of prairies. But he knew at that point, too, that prairie, would, he was going to be away from the forests down there in Kansas, and it would be much more wide yes. open grassland. Yeah. Uh ecosystems so that's that's really interesting that that was part of his his deciding factor as well um what's interesting so this is just coming from a prairie standpoint uh one of the things that that can uh you know take over prairie and take away a prairie landscape transform a prairie landscape to something else are trees um you know they'll get started in prairie and eventually you'll have forest is the responsibility of the big grazers to keep those down and, and regular burning of the prairie would uh, keep, keep that from happening, but which is mentioned in the story as well. But uh, yeah, so uh, interesting history there in the background of, of her family. But once they officially became pioneers, they put everything on the wagon, they left the house behind and, and uh, left family behind a lot. They had a lot of family connections there and, in Wisconsin and, and, uh, I imagine that just had to be very hard for everyone involved, both the family saying goodbye to them as they're leaving, but then also, uh, for the Ingalls themselves as they're, you know, that's your support network. That's, those are the people that you're close to. Um, there's all kinds of dangers, dangers in travel. Can you just kind of describe what they would have endured when they loaded up on the wagon to, head to their new home on the prairie? Well, there's any time bad weather, mm-hmm. and that definitely would slow their travels up. Um, so there bad weather to consider, um, just all kinds of dangers, wild animals. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know necessarily about a strangers that they might meet on the trail, but I'm mm-hmm. just imagining that not everyone could be trusted. Yeah. And so there's always something to be careful with. Yeah. Um, Charles had said at one time that to protect his family, all he needed was a gun and a good dog. Mm -hmm. And that was for protection, the dog to warn them and the gun to hunt, to feed his family. So I imagine all kinds of, and you know, you mentioned about even crossing a river. Yeah. You could lose your life. And and you were talking about saying goodbye to your family. You think about all those pioneers that had left home with the idea they may never see their family again. And the only connection that they might have is a letter that has been sent months and months before. Mm -hmm. Um, So it, you know, just emotionally, it's going to be a very hard trip. Yeah. Yeah. Those are great points. Um, the river crossing, they talk about that early in the story, the little house in the prairie, uh, Pa's like, Hey, we need to go now because the Mississippi river is frozen and they took their wagon across a frozen Mississippi river. Now the Mississippi river 
today is very different than what it would have been then. Um, I can't remember the year they started doing uh, locks and dams on the Mississippi River. Probably actually not too – I mean, it would have been within Laura's lifetime that that would have been happening. But it, I believe at that point, which would have been 1880s, 90s, something like that, with it, or 1870s, was that when she – uh, went to Little House on the Prairie, 1870s. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so that definitely would have been before channelization and locks and dams on the river. And uh, so it, was, it, it behaved differently, but still, I would not want to be walking across the ice on the Mississippi River, let alone having a team of horses and um, a wagon and a whole family and all their belongings <laughs> on there. <laughs> but doesn't Paul mention something about how like the next day would have been too late or something right. like that? <laughs> yeah. They could hear the ice breaking up apparently. So <laughs> I just they were really taking a chance. Man, I cannot, I cannot imagine that. So all those dangers, you mentioned the, you know, the seclusion, there's danger in seclusion. Um, in fact, kind of at the end of the little house in the prairie, we hear an account of a unfortunate family who was a horse thieves came in the night and took their team of horses away, just left them stranded Mm -hmm. out there in the middle of the prairie. And uh, there's danger and seclusion on the journey. So very dangerous, but obviously then the motivations that you mentioned for what got Paw stirred up to make this journey with his family was powerful enough to make him still risk it all. Right. Yeah. I think he was a real um, adventurer. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And um, uh, so, you know, something else that, and we talked about this a little bit when the case with Wisconsin, you know, being settled prior to um, when people started settling on the prairies. Uh, Pioneers have a bad reputation, even now in history, for exhausting a lot of our natural resources. Somewhat maybe timber, you know, all the deforestation to build houses, to burn wood, um, because that was that was the energy source. Um, that was your supply. But also, especially our wildlife. Um, uh, now, I think it's unfair that we link um, pioneers with, like, hide hunters, you know, uh, market hunters mm-hmm. that existed kind of even a little bit after the pioneer era, you know, not too much after maybe 10, 15 years as settlers were kind of opening up the country um, behind them came these market hunters, Buffalo hunters that would, would just kill, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of animals at a time. And in a very uh, wasteful manner, you know, taking only hides or tongues or, or, you know, stuff like that and leaving the rest to spoil. And, and, uh, the kill rate far exceeded the, the reproduction rate. And you saw these, these species eliminated from areas, you know, Iowa, for example, had a lot of elk, had a lot of bison, had, had, um, a lot more bird species than what we had. We, we actually eliminated our turkey population for a time. We eliminated our, um, elk population still to this day and our bison, we have no free ranging bison or elk anymore, our prairie chickens, you know? So, and a lot of that was because these people now needed that resource as their grocery store. And, uh, there's lots of stories about paw going out and hunting for the day, but there's something that Laura mentions that I thought was interesting how she said this because it's almost like she might be addressing that black eye on pioneers, you know, and settlers that you guys, you guys used all this up. And she talks, she says, Pa, it was a day he went out uh, hunting because the geese and ducks were migrating through. And Pa says that he only shot uh, the, the geese and ducks that he needed, that the family needed for that day. No sense in killing more than, than uh, what we could eat for tonight's supper. And uh, he also then makes the comment that, well, I saw some deer today or something like that, but I didn't shoot him because it's not cold enough yet. And we can't freeze the meat and we'll waste it. If we, if I shot one today, we'd only be able to eat what we can eat today and maybe tomorrow. And then the rest would all go to waste, that kind of thing. Do you think that was kind of like a, 
I'm going to try and make a, make this look better than what it was intention for Laura when she wrote that? Or do you think that was really in his, in his uh, practice and considering, you know, almost that conservation mindset that he would have had? I mean, what, what's your perspective on that? You know, I, I'm not certain what, (laughs) what he was thinking, but if you read Laura's books um, and consider the time that she was growing up, um, they had to take care of everything that he hunted and brought mm-hmm. in and how Ma would um, very ingeniously sometimes use up everything that she could and mm-hmm. to deal with having to deal with more than they could use up or store. Mm, that's a very um, good point. I'm not sure what they would have done with that, whether they had any means of more storage or, Mm -hmm. and it would be more work for her to put up. I, I'm just getting the sense that they lived with what they needed only. Yeah. Yeah, That's, those are great points. Very good points. I never thought of it that way. And you're right. She does describe that very carefully. Uh, In fact, it's, it's really incredible how well she described it. It makes me think that she must've been doing some of those same meat preparation things that her mom did when she was an adult, you know? Oh, I think so. Like when, especially in little or little house in the big woods, when she talks about the pork Mm -hmm. or when they slaughter the pig and making head cheese and, (laughs) and and some of the other stuff that they make out of that, that is a very detailed or just making regular cheese too. You know, and some of those things, they were very, very industrious family. Um, Just really knew how to do a lot of different things to stay alive. The other thought that, that I had too, along with that question about not being a wasteful hunter ammunition. It talks multiple times to the stories about Pa sitting up usually the night before he's going to go hunting and he's pouring lead balls to go into his, his, um, you know, probably a Flint lock rifle that he would have had. And I uh, had to cast his own bullets for that. And, uh, um, he, you couldn't really, because that would have been so hard to get, probably even in Wisconsin, you know, where there is some more towns close by and everything is still probably a bit of a task to go get more lead, um, or, or gunpowder. But especially when they're down in Kansas that they had to be pretty, you know, thrifty with what they had in that regard. And it was also, as you mentioned earlier too, is defense against, you know, thieves or, or any other conflicts, um, uh, that he would have had to protect the family, you know, he wasn't going to probably be very wasteful with, with that. And so, you know, when I started to learn about how a lot of, I mean, it is true. The pioneers contributed to the, you know, extirpation of a lot of our species, unfortunately, but it was much more so out of necessity for surviving, having food to survive. They were desperate in, in many cases for food and not so such a wanton, wasteful, uh, means of it. I think that blame belongs much more so to, um, the commodity of wildlife, you know, that existed during the market hunting era where, you know, the, you had the hide hunters and so forth. And so I don't think the pioneers deserve as much flack maybe as, as, uh, we give them, but yeah, it was just an interesting part of the story that I, I, I remember for that. Um, but also, Something that I kind of learned that was, you know, it it was a paradigm shift for me when I was uh, re- uh, reading Little House on the Prairie. Um, pa talks about, okay, this winter, it was after they had the house built. It was after, you know, they, they were more or less kind of hanging out for the first while there, trying to get settled, you know, trying. Um, they'd made some good deals along the way. They upgraded their horse situation it seems um by trading a kind of an old big workhorse for two lighter horses that would be better for riding around and kind of doing the exploration stuff that that paw would do through the story and um he they built the house built the barn dug the well did all that stuff to get things livable but they weren't farming yet I think they had a garden, maybe. They did have they did do some gardening, but no large scale farming, which is the opposite of what you think when you think of pioneers. You think, you know, day one they were pull, dragging a plow through the you know, a steel plow through the 
prairie grasses, uprooting them and transplanting, uh, you know, what they knew, corn, uh, uh, oats, wheat, you know, things like that, that they could, they could use as, as food immediately. But that wasn't the case. Um, part of it was probably just the practicality of hauling a heavy piece of farm equipment all that way in your wagon, you know, a plow is going to take up a lot of space and, uh, there's not really a better way to transport it than by sticking it in your wagon with the rest of your family and other belongings. And, um, uh, that was a critically important piece of equipment. If you're going to grow crops on the prairie, in fact, um, the thing that kills prairie more than anything else is a plow. Um, even using uh, modern, uh, herbicides on prairie doesn't, you know, it doesn't really get to the root on a lot of those species. And so, yeah, they might die out for a year, but they'll be back next year, you know? Um, so you had to, in other words, have money either that you took with you to buy a plow when you got there, or you had to raise money to get a plow to then transfer over to farming. And that's really where, what, what Pa ends up doing, right? He does a lot of trapping and so forth. Right, right. And, yeah. and he, never got, he never got to farming though, right? No, they never got a good start. They weren't there long enough. And, and as you referred to, they probably didn't have the means to do that. Yeah, yeah. And so, <laughs> and so uh, you, you know, it was kind of a, you know, a light bulb moment for me when I heard Laura recounting that. Do you think that was common for most pioneers at that time that it kind of went in that order? You found another way to make money so you could get into farming and then you started farming? Yeah, I think so. Um, more so than we, than we remember or think about. Um, mm -hmm. It had to be hard for, I would say, the majority of pioneers to get started any place. Um, unless they came from a family of wealth. Mm -hmm. Yep. So, so uh, another interesting thing, you know, just about uh, maybe a, a, you know, something that's different than what, than what uh, we would expect for pioneers to have been doing at the time. Um, so, this takes us perfectly to the kind of the end of the Little House on the Prairie book. One day, you know just within a, a few pages earlier, we hear about this new pl plow that Paul comes home with after selling all of his furs in independence. And, and it comes back with a few other things and life seems to be stable and good. They survive the, the scare with uh, thinking that um, uh, the indigenous people of the area are going to push them back out of the area. But um, really a guy who kind of in a way ends up being a friend to him. Uh, because uh, the Ingalls family kind of showed some kindness to him. The Native American leader goes in on behalf of the settlers of the area. And so you think, all right, they're going to get down to business here. They're going to start setting up their farmstead. The neighbors come, say something to Pa, and Pa isn't like, well, let's see this ride out or whatever. Has this kind of heated almost conversation with a couple of the neighbors comes inside and says to his wife and the kids time to load up the wagon again we're leaving <laughs> do you do you think that was just laura's perception of what the decision was at that point or do you think there was a whole bunch of factors that went into pa doing that and i don't think she realized the conversation between ma and pa mm. about their decision to leave again Okay. Um, for her, it was just, oh, we're moving again in the wagon. Off we go, mm -hmm. which happens so often mm -hmm. during her lifetime. Uh, because when she's writing these books, you know, she's experienced 60 years of living this way um, in a wagon, traveling constantly. And so a lot of those decisions were made without her knowledge sure. and the reasons behind, behind that. And as I said before, there were a lot of things that could have contributed to that decision that she might not have been aware of. Mm -hmm. Between the uh, the land, the people that lived there, the railroad, the government, there were a lot of contributing factors. Yeah. 
Yeah, that makes sense. I kind of almost wonder if there had been some heated conversations after uh, Laura and Mary fell asleep at night where Ma said, we need to get out of here, you know, uh, because there was so much stress, you know. Uh-huh. There's the story of the prairie fire, which um, can you kind of describe that scene for us a little bit, like what, what the settlers experienced during those prairie burns? Well, when we give uh, tours here, we sometimes take our school children up to the cemetery. Mm-hmm. And the second person buried in that cemetery was a three-year-old little girl who was caught in a prairie fire. Really? And she didn't die of the fire. It was the smoke. Mm. And I have the children look around the landscape and and uh, imagine the entire landscape being on fire or in smoke mm-hmm. and is coming towards you. And you have no place to go because they didn't live close enough to water. Well, they did fairly. I mean, I think they put baby... Carrie in her story in the water while they tried to battle that. Mm. But they're out there battling that on their own. And um, Pa quickly plowed a path around the house so that the fire would not jump over and burn the house. But you're thinking, you're they're fighting this all on their own. Mm-hmm. And there's no way of stopping the fire. And even the animals on the prairie were running. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they probably thought we should be doing that too. Yeah. But anyway, uh, it it's just what an experience, mm-hmm. a horrible experience. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the story does a great job of describing all the, just this mass migration, sudden migration of animals trying to stay out in front of the flames and get down into the creek bottom. And that's a question that Nicholas, my coworker, often asks is, what did all the animals do when these prairies were burned? And uh, because they were burned pretty frequently, um, both by natural causes like a lightning strike, um, but also there's well-documented history that Native Americans managed the prairie. Um, it made it more huntable, you know, because every time you, if you can expand where the bison like to graze in Rome, if you can expand those boundaries, well, then you, you'll have more bison to hunt and more elk to hunt. And so uh, it was definitely, uh, a, you know, a part of their prairie management that they would do. Um, and so the, my, my coworker says, well, where'd all the animals go? And I think that was part of it, you know, that Laura mentioned the story. If there was a creek bottom nearby, they knew to get there. Um, but also, you know, you had some of those prairie pothole ponds that existed and and um, also uh, the grazing line from, you know, bison and elk, too, would probably help. Um, but, yeah, that was the a part of it is a lot of animals probably died in those fires, too, and people did, too. But again, another testament to the quick thinking and uh, the just the capability of pa and and ma in the story where uh, i think they talk about them getting uh wasn't it like burlap sacks and soaking right. them in water yeah. and they would they would slap out the fire and, and they talked about pa doing a back burn too mm-hmm. which we burn prairie for work and um that's probably your number one right there is having a back burn around the things that because if there's no fuel left then there's not going to be flames there to to damage you know what you don't want damage so um just the fact that they understood how to do that and they it's not like they'd lived on the prairie forever either you know it was they they were smart people that could act in a second but they end up deciding to leave and it could have been all of those factors you know it could have been ma just couldn't take it anymore and maybe pa too maybe he was tired of being stressed out every time he went out wondering you know what's going to happen to my family while i'm gone well Uh, and you also think that you know they were there all by themselves mm -hmm. how difficult that must have been to even say for instance plow yeah they didn't have this family support or different members of the family helping each other out I'll, i'll help you plow and then you come help me plow and just being there by themselves seems to me that it would have made it doubly hard mm-hmm. to get a good start and much easier to find a reason to leave again. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. There is, that's, that's such a great point. And also, you know, part of that stress too, being sickness, you know, they 
probably came very close to losing some family members when they all came down with malaria. Right. And, uh, yeah, so there's a lot of motivation to, to get out of there, and they did. And they eventually, so let's talk some more about their time here in Baroque. They came here and they managed a, it's a hotel, right? It was a hotel. Or kind of a boarding house or? Uh, it was both. They had both uh, travelers that stayed here, but they also rented rooms to boarders. Okay. And then the family lived here while they were working here, yes. correct? right. Now, I can't imagine you can really give up much space to the family while they're running a hotel, right? Because, right. you know, it's a hotel. The way you make money is you have rooms available for people to stay in. So did the whole family have to like cram into one small room while they're Well, we're going there? to assume that. That's what we assume when we give our tours and give people, people information for exactly that reason. The family isn't going to take up a lot of space. And upstairs... Um, above the tavern and the parlor, there were only four rooms. Hmm. So if the family spreads out, which ones are they going to use for hotel people? Uh, Plus the Stedman family, their partners in this business were living here also. Mm -hmm. So we're just going to make the assumption that the family lived together in one room. Okay. Yeah, so very tight quarters. Um, I suppose they were probably somewhat used to the crampness and privacy issues that come from, you know, living in a cabin out on the, the frontier. But there you could kind of control how big of a house you're going to build and and maybe have some, you know, more elbow room type of thing. But now they're crammed in here. They have to share a kitchen and cooking quarters and everything else with everyone else. It, it was probably kind of a tough go, was it not, while they were here? Yes, they were very overworked and underpaid. Mm. Um, Ma was running a restaurant here in the hotel, um, feeding people three times a day. Mm. Um, They did hire a young gal named Amy, but we don't know if she was helping in the kitchen or not. Mm -hmm. Um, Otherwise, Ma was, this was her job. And um, Pa had, you know, just all kinds of things to do, bookkeeper and chores and maintenance mm-hmm. and stabling horses and what have you. Even the little girls were put to work. They were washing dishes and setting the tables for the restaurant. So this whole family had tried to pull together to make this work. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I said, they just very overworked and mm-hmm. underpaid. So um, it did not work out well for them. And so did their whole time that they lived in Baroque, did they live in this building or did they eventually no. move out? Yeah, they moved out after three months. They decided oh, okay. hotel business was not for them and they weren't earning the kind of money that they thought they would. So they rented rooms up above a store uh, for a time being. And that is when Pa got himself a partner and they opened up a feed mill. Okay. And they ground the corn and wheat for area farmers. And that was during the the winter time. But then come spring, you know, the the livestock would be let out into yeah, the pastures. Right. And so they didn't need the services of a feed mill anymore. So Pa sold his share of the mill and and just started picking up odd jobs. When they left the they also decided to leave those rooms up above the store and rent a house out on the edge of town where it was more private and and larger and what have you. And um, so they lived in three different places here in Baroque. Oh, wow. And that last place that they lived um, was where the youngest of the Ingalls, Grace, was born. Okay. So there was some good that... That, that was the bright spot of their year in Baroque. <laughs> and so that was the only Ingalls... F- Ingalls family member to uh, be born in Iowa, right? Right. And that was the only year the whole family lived in Iowa, right? Right. They never, ever again lived in Iowa. That's right. And so when they they left Baroque, um, did they... Did they go back to Minnesota? Is that where they went? Yes, they went back to Walnut Grove, Minnesota and lived right in town. Okay. And at that point... Had Pa been, you know, basically broken so many times by, by uh, you know, debts and and a hard market and a tough time to be raising a family, that he kind of gave up on the farming dreams, or did he eventually aspire back to 
getting back on a farm somewhere and being more self-sustaining like they've been. He still wanted to homestead. He didn't have that opportunity back in Walnut Grove. Um, As I said, they lived right in town, and Mm -hmm. he, again, picked up some odd jobs and some carpentry work, um, and eventually they left for the Dakota Territory. Okay. And and so then that's where they kind of homesteaded again. Right. Right. So... Man, what a fascinating story. I'm so glad Iowa got to be a part of it, even though it's kind of a sad part of it in some ways. But that's a good, that's a nice, that's a big bright spot and Grace being born here. And and uh, um, also the fact that uh, it's, it's still the original building, you know, the original, as you were telling me, the original beams from the 1850s still hold this place up. There's had to, had to be some renovations as there must be for sure. a building of this mm-hmm. age. But but uh, a lot of pride wrapped up for this community in, in this, right? Yes. Um, when, when word first got around that back in the early 1970s that Laura Ingalls Wilder lived here, there was a lot of research done at the courthouse and what have you by four individuals to determine whether that story was true. Mm. And after that, a lot of, that sparked a lot of interest and um, it took off from there. The museum, which is the hotel hotel building, was open to the public exactly 100 years after the Ingalls oh, were here cool. in 1976. That's cool. Yeah, that's a that's such a neat part of the story. And like I said, I'm glad Iowa got to have a little tiny piece of it. And uh, if people want to come visit, um, you guys are open. Is it every weekday that you're open? We're open seven days a week from the 1st of May until Labor Day. And then after Labor Day, we're open Thursdays, Friday, yeah, Thursdays, Fridays, and Saturdays until the middle of October. Okay. So if you're, if you're ever in Driftless, Iowa, you need to make the trip. It's, it's actually my second time here. It's, it's a wonderful thing. And you guys do a great job uh, making it a good experience for people to visit. It's very accessible and, and a lot of neat things around the, for people to see. And you guys obviously know your stuff too, which is a big part of it as well. It's kind of funny when you think that not, there just can't be any more information out there. Yeah. There is somewhere. Yep. <laughs> and then you change and edit your story a little bit so that it, it is more accurate. And uh, we try to do as good a job as we can with the information that is there. Yeah, well, you guys do an excellent job, and and uh, love hearing the history of even the prairies that would have been in this area at the one at one time. Of course, it's a tragic, sad story about the loss of the little three year old in the the prairie fire, but uh, definitely a place that um, uh, I think is probably a little bit closer to what it originally was than much of Iowa is still today. Um, there's definitely still some prairie pockets around up, up here and, and the forests and the bluffs and the things that really seem rather timeless are still what make this such a naturally beautiful place. And so I think it's only fitting that, you know, you have such a cool historic landmark in amongst all of that here in the, the Ingalls Museum. So. So I, I really like that. Well, thank you very much, Barb, for coming on the podcast and sharing what you know about the Ingalls family and their time here in Baroque and even uh, when they're living out on the prairie and venturing uh, around as a family trying to make a go at it. Um, definitely uh, one of America's most historic families. Um, and a big part of that is Laura's willingness to share just her experiences and doing such a great job of, of recording them and, and writing them and communicating with, with uh, people. And it's a story that has gone through generations of people who've those, those stories that those books have been around for quite a while now and uh, they've affected a lot of people's lives. And she's one of those rare authors that has never been out of print. Her mm. first book was published in 1932 and, and wow. she has never been out of print. Wow. That that's a statement right there. That's that's pretty that's pretty wild. Yeah, I should have looked that up. I should have done better homework and looked at how many copies of Little House in the Prairie have sold uh, through time. You know, that's probably the most famous book, but but all the books in the series are are uh, treasured too by by people. So, well, thank you very much, Barb, for uh, letting me come and interview, and and you did a great job. And thank you to our listeners. Please remember, this podcast is presented by Hoxie Native Seeds. Um, 
I'm not sure when this third episode in the series is going to release. So we're really busy right now. We just uh, we we've harvested three species in the past two days of uh, prairie flowers and one grass. Um, we have a lot more yet to go this year, so it'll be pretty busy for the next month or so. But uh, uh, whenever things uh, get going again, do remember that uh, if you need to order seed for this fall planting season for CRP or a backyard prairie plot, uh, head over to hoxynativeseeds.com. You can find our different mixes that we have there or the prairiefarm.com, and uh, you can find uh, some seed mixes there as well. Um, we really appreciate you guys tuning in. If you haven't yet, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. That helps get our podcast out to more ears who want to know more about Prairie and uh, more about the people who have interacted with Prairie. And uh, just as uh, we learned today, it holds a lot of unique history um, in, for our country and uh, something that I think all of us can probably connect to in some way, shape, or form. Well, thank you again, Barb. Well, thank you. Yeah, uh, it, was, it was my my pleasure to be here. Just really an, an awesome time. So, and thank you again to the listeners. Um, please uh, remember, if you share this podcast with others, you can help change their mind, and that's what we need because conservation happens one mind at a time.